This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfinley.org. Today we begin a new series all about families. We're going to take the next four weeks and read through some examples from Scripture of the families that we find there. Stories about conflict and strife. What we find as we read through these examples of families is that uh, the families in the Bible were, were in many ways broken, dysfunctional. And part of the reason for that is that they're made up of imperfect people. Now the joy that we have in, in knowing that these examples are there is that we don't walk away from Scripture uh, dejected because there's no hope for us to live up to the picture-perfect example that's there, like the the photo frame you buy at the, at the store, and, and the, the family, the stock photo that comes in there is just a smiling family, oh, piggybacks on the beach, everybody having a wonderful moment. And you think, well, that's not, that's not reality. That's not life. When we read Scripture, what we find is a genuine look at the families who, who lived through those experiences, families who were very much imperfect. And we can relate to that. We can relate to the idea of being a part of an imper- imperfect family. Why? Because I'm imperfect, you're imperfect, and we're related to people who are imperfect. And sometimes we're painfully aware of the imperfections of the people that we are closest to. But we have these things in common with biblical families. One, that we're imperfect, and two, that we're a part of a family. We know what it is to, to have parents and the, the, feel the, the weight of the instructions and rules and guidance and also the love and the support and the tenderness that's there. To have brothers and sisters that we care very much about, but also that we uh, have conflict with, tension. We know what it is to be a part of an extended family. And to get together, especially at holidays, and sit around a table, and we feel that nostalgia. We feel that, that comfort. It just feels like being home again. But even within that comfort, we also feel the tension between us and other people, the, the tension represented by the conflict that is either currently there or that has been there in the past. And we know that not everything will, will feel easy and comfortable. But we get to learn significantly from these stories of scripture, from Scripture about families that are imperfect. And we can learn from them very well because we're not talking about our own difficulties. We're talking about their difficulties. And so we can use their example. We can use their mistakes. We can use their flaws as a, as a great way to, to make connections and draw application. In some ways, it's very much easier to learn from other people's mistakes than it is to learn from our own. We don't have to feel the, the guilt and the shame of, of laying out all of our problems and difficulties, yet we can still find ways to resolve those problems and difficulties because of the lessons we learn from these stories from Scripture. So today we're going to begin reading and looking at a very particular story. Before we do, I want to begin by simply stating the obvious that will set us into the sermon today. Conflict can very easily come between members of the family. Conflict can emerge in surprisingly easy ways. You think about siblings living together, growing up and establishing life on their own, and the kind of, kind of closeness that there is between siblings, a closeness that you can't find anywhere else, and yet also this this tension of conflict between siblings as well, brothers and sisters, 
share this closeness that can lead to significant tension. Siblings have a tendency to compare themselves to one another, to always be looking to make sure things are even and fair. Now, sometimes that's making sure everybody gets the same size piece of pie when we're cutting it up and giving it out. Sometimes it's making sure everybody gets an even turn, counting the seconds to make sure everything is fair between everybody. Sometimes that means trying to fight each other for affirmation and approval. And as siblings get older, that comparison doesn't stop in terms of career, in terms of family and places where they live, the kind of cars that they drive, the way that they raise their kids. Siblings will still compete, compare, look very closely at the lives of their siblings. Sometimes siblings can be very critical of one another. And they're, they're apt to tear each other down. And sometimes it's just a matter of pushing buttons, of, of saying things that they know will irritate their siblings just for the sake of doing it, just to get, to get a reaction out of them. Siblings are excellent at just pushing buttons. The siblings are also very good at recognizing the potential in their brothers and sisters. And sometimes they can see that potential more clearly than anybody else can. They look at a brother or sister and, and see what, what might be in store for them in the future, see the quality that God has placed there, and want so much to see their brother and sister succeed. And sometimes that leads to tension later down the road when siblings try and push each other to the greatness they see in them. And when that sibling that they see potential in doesn't make the right choices, doesn't get the career that maybe you'd hope they would, or begins a relationship that takes them down a different path. Sometimes siblings, in their hope to help their sibling accomplish what they think they can, they end up criticizing, becoming judgmental and harsh, not because they want to tear them down, but because they don't know how to motivate their sibling to be the best that they can be. Siblings have difficulty together. Sometimes parents and children have difficulty with each other. <clears throat> children can have difficulty because they don't quite understand why their parents impose the kind of rules that they do. They begin to push back against those rules. Why are their parents continually pressuring them to do things a certain way? They don't understand, so they push back. And as kids get older and they, they have those decisions about careers and and relationships and parents are, are, are influencing and trying to, to point them in the right direction. Even adult children can push back very hard against that kind of influence. Sometimes children have difficulty with the idea that, that they have been given so much, provided for in their early years. And the quality of life that they had within the house of their parents is very different than the quality of life that they're able to establish when they move out on their own. And so they start a career and they rent a place to live. And they get frustrated because the, the quality of life is so much less than they remember growing up. And they don't, they don't realize that parents have spent years and years building up the resources that they have. And, and a child can't expect to have those same kind of resources when they're first starting out. Sometimes they get bitter that their place in life seems so much less than it was when they were growing up at home. And they feel entitled to more. And they, build, they grow resentful of the way their parents are living because they can't seem to make ends meet. There's difficulty all around. Sometimes parents have difficulty with kids. 
wanting the best for them, trying to help them make wise decisions, trying to set them on the right path. But parents worry. We fear for kids. We, we truly, we, we recognize the dangers they're around. And there's this tension of wanting children to be the best that they can be and do the best that they can do. And, and this tension of wanting to help them do that, but not wanting to push too hard and, and push them away. And there's this, this balance that parents have to, have to very carefully weigh in how they can guide their children, how they can encourage them to be the best they can be without damaging them or pushing them away. With all these things considered, all these potential places for, for conflict, we also recognize that even a conversation can create conflict. When we sit down over a meal, we'd be careful about the things we talk about. Certain topics can, can be the spark that ignites a, a huge argument. If we start talking about politics around a table or sports, if your family has different allegiances, Religion can be a difficult topic. We talk about the way children are being raised and lifestyles, decisions that are being made. Those, those conversations can be very difficult for families trying to get along. And we're not alone in that experience. When we have difficulty at home with family, we, the, the encouragement we have is that we're not alone. Every family struggles. Every family has conflict. And every family has to discover how they're going to navigate through that conflict, come out on the other side. Today, I want to begin by reading about the first family, not the president's family. The first family, historically, if we look back in the book, in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve, Cain, Abel, and Seth. I want to read that story from Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there, please do so. The words will be on the screen. If you want to use a device, you can search under uh, events in the YouVersion app for Parkview Finley. You'll find scripture and sermon notes there. Let's begin reading Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Can you imagine the first birth in history and the, just the astonishment of Eve? With the help of the Lord, I, I brought forth a man. Now, in verse 2. Abel kept flocks. Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out in the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment's more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. 
Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And we have a, a short passage that describes how Cain established his life and got married and uh, began to have children and the kind of uh, family they were. And in verse 25, we come back to Adam and Eve. And it says, Adam made love to his wife again. She gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. As we move into chapter 5 of Genesis, we see a record of people, uh, the historic lineage that we often see in Scripture. Here's what it says. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them, and he named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. Now recognize, even in this depiction of the first family, we see conflict rise up between Cain and Abel, the oldest brothers, the oldest sons of Adam and Eve. And this conflict that came up, really, it's a matter of jealousy. Of jealousy overcoming Cain towards his brother Abel. When we think about the, the kinds of conflict that comes up within our families, the difficulties that arise, much of it is the result of jealousy. And jealousy is the result of, of our own selfish perspectives. Driving us overcoming us. That's what we see in Cain. He was jealous of the offering that Abel presented to the Lord. And he was jealous of the favorable response that Abel received from God. Now maybe this jealousy had been building. Maybe this was a result of the, the resentment that Cain had toward Abel and the position in life. That he was tired of, of the hard labor of working the soil and watering the ground and gathering the crops. And he looked over at Abel, who, who walked out in the fields with the sheep and stood with his staff, making sure everything was good, and laid in the grass and made sure everything was fine. And he looked at life, and it just seemed out of balance. Maybe it was a long-standing grudge between the two of them. Tension that was building, culminating at this moment when they presented their offerings to the Lord. The wording here suggests that Cain recognized that his offering was not the same quality as the offering that Abel presented. Abel took from his flocks the firstborn, the choice animal. And when it was cut up, he took the best pieces of meat, the fatty portions, the pieces that would have been the most tender, the piece of meat that everyone would have reached for at the table. He took those and he gave those as a sacrifice to the Lord, a gift of praise and thanks. It was the best of what he had. And what we see about Cain's offering is that when he gathered the crops, he took some of the crops and laid them out before the Lord. Now, he didn't take the best. He didn't look through and find the, 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 the nicest, the biggest. But he also didn't look through and find the worst either. He didn't find the ones that were bruised up and eaten by insects. No, he just gathered some of what was there. And he laid that out before the Lord. And that was his offering of praise and thanks to God. Now notice the, the difference of quality there. 
Notice the difference in the two offerings laid out and the reflection of the heart that we can see in, in the sacrifice that was made. Yeah, both of them were a sacrifice. They gave up some of the, the produce of their hard labor. But Abel's sacrifice was of the best. And Cain gave some of what he had. And God looked with favor on Abel's offering. And he didn't look with favor on Cain's offering. And Cain hung his head, downcast, dejected. But why? Was he upset because of the way God responded? Surely he could have predicted the way God would have responded, knowing the difference in quality. Was it a reflection of the rivalry between them, the competitiveness of brothers? As he looked over at Abel's meat, saw how good it was, knew that he had been outdone. Was it a reflection of, of his disappointment with himself, being frustrated that he had been too lazy to pick out the best, too selfish to give God the the choicest piece. What we know is that he recognized the difference. He saw that he didn't have God's favor. And he was downcast. And God said, why? Why are you so downcast? And we hear this warning in verse 7. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? If you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, God's response isn't because he prefers meat over veggies. God responded to Cain in recognition of what had happened and also in warning of what was going to happen. Now, it seems that both God and Cain knew that his offering wasn't the best quality. Now, we don't have any instructions in Scripture. We don't see anywhere where, uh, where this, this offering was commanded by God for his people to, to offer up in praise of him yet. Uh, these early pages of Scripture, we don't have any kind of instructions about, about how they should do that. All we see is that, that they voluntarily gave of their labor to God, to praise him, to thank him. But there's something wrong with the gift that Cain gave because it wasn't his best. It seems that they both knew it. But notice the warning about what's coming. If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? If you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. There's temptation coming. And that sin wants to take hold of your life. It wants to have you. And you need to master it. You need to take control. And that opportunity came quickly. The encounter was too much for Cain to bear. He invited his brother out to the field, and he gave vent to his rage. He destroyed his brother, killing him because of the jealousy that he felt, the emotion that built up inside of him, let his blood spill out onto the ground. That was the result of the tension and the jealousy and the conflict. Now, overcoming conflict in the family is a matter of choosing to do what's right. And that's the instructions we have from God that was given directly to Cain. If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? In terms of our relationships with 
siblings and parents and extended family, if we choose to do what is right, won't we be accepted? If we care about the people in our lives, won't those relationships grow? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at the door and wants to have you. But doing what's right is a difficult prospect, especially when we think about the conflict that already exists in our families. Doing what's right means that we have to accept truth and reality and work with that truth and reality. Sometimes we have the habit of looking back at, at conflict, at past problems, and when we replay those in our minds, we make ourselves the victim. We remember the wrongs that are done to us. We remember how we've been hurt by other people. And we don't remember all the things that we did to contribute to that conflict. And so we feel this entitlement that other people should make amends with us. We feel this, this victim mentality that, that we deserve to have other people come and apologize. But we need to, to, to understand with reality that it's our responsibility to own our wrongs, to take responsibility for our side of conflict and to choose to make amends, to choose to step forward and not let that mentality, not let that, that, that remembrance justify our own negative behavior. We need to think in terms of what we can give to our family, not what we can get out of our family. And we must actively pursue good within those relationships. We must actively choose to do what is right for the sake of the people in our lives. And we'd be careful not to let familiarity weaken our resolve. We can't allow familiarity to impact the way that we treat the people close to us, closest to us. Have you noticed how the people that you care about the most are the people that you treat the worst? Think about a really, a really stressful, difficult week that you've had at work. Maybe on a Thursday, you've had all these, these heavy things weighing down on you. You've had some difficult conversations with coworkers. You had a boss that, that reprimanded you. It's just been a heavy week and a difficult day. And you get home, ready to relax, hoping to, to just dump all of that stress. And you take off your work clothes and you put on something comfortable. You let your hair down. And, and you start working together with your family, making dinner. And you're in the same space, and everything's close. And you're thinking about cleaning up the dishes after dinner and all the rest of the things you have to get done that night. And in the process of all that closeness, one of your kids asks a question. They get a little demanding. And instead of responding to the question, you've let your guard down enough that all the emotion and stress that's been building up just comes out. And you overreact. You raise your voice, you shout, you blow up. You take a step back in that moment. And even as the words are coming out, you know they're, they're wrong. You know it's not the right time and place. And you can see the damage that you're doing. They didn't deserve that treatment. They didn't deserve that reaction. They didn't deserve that volume. They didn't deserve to be the brunt of all the stress and pain that you've been experiencing. And yet it happened. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation. I have. It's hard. It's painful. 
And in those moments, we have to choose to do what's right. We have to choose to, to rule over the temptation and sin, to not let it take hold of us, but instead to master it, to master our emotions, to master those moments, and also to care for the people that we've harmed. Step forward in humility, acknowledge what went wrong, and talk to them about what's going to happen in the future. I'm sorry about that. Here's what's been happening in my week. You didn't deserve that. And I'm not going to let that happen anymore. It's a difficult thing to do, but it's important for us to recognize that God provided a family for us to invest in, to grow, to build relationships with, to help point them to the Lord, not as a place for us to vent our anger and frustration from the rest of the world. And we'd be very careful about what we choose to do and what we choose to say, especially with the people that we care most about, because they're the ones who see us for the real person that we are. They're the ones who, who dig down below the surface, who move past the smiling faces and the pleasant conversations. They deal with the real us. And we need to be careful to make that real us the kind of person that God desires for us to be. And we have to choose to focus to do what's right so that we don't passively create conflict in our homes. That by not actively doing what's right, we slide into this negative treatment. We slide into these overreactions. We let our guard down and find ourselves creating conflict that shouldn't be there. This is the same way that we overcome the tendency toward jealousy and the, the damage that does to our relationships. We have to actively master it, choosing to do what's right, instead of passively, passively sliding into what's wrong. When those jealous feelings emerge within us, we have to choose to be content with what we have, choose to look outside of ourselves, recognize the blessings that we have for what they are. We need to learn to be happy for others when they succeed. We need to celebrate their, their joys, be happy for them when they are able to buy nice things. We have to learn to give our best effort so that we're not frustrated with our own laziness and lack of success, but know that the life that we have is good and it's the best that we are able to do. On the other side of things, we also need to be careful and not create jealousy in the lives of other people. We need to head off jealousy in our relationships by being considerate of others in times of success. When we have things go well, when we have a promotion, we're making more money, we're able to buy nice things, we'd be careful not to boast about that and parade our successes in front of others. We need to care for them. And be considerate, not create difficult moments where they might respond to jealousy. We also need to find moments to, to diffuse jealousy by being fair and consistent with the way that we talk to others, especially parents with your kids. You choose to be fair and consistent with the love and affirmation that you give to your children. Not every child receives love a different way. They're just like we are. Some of them want to hear words of affirmation. Others, they, they feel loved when they receive gifts. Others will need uh, to have an arm around them. They need that, that physical contact to feel loved. Kids receive love in different ways. And while you're, you're affirming your children in different ways, you need to make sure you dole out that affirmation evenly so that one child doesn't feel like they're boosted up above the other, so that other children aren't looking around wondering why they're not loved as much as their siblings. It's a difficulty that exists in every family. My sisters and I have been teasing our parents for years about the fact that I'm the favorite, and everybody knows it. I'm just kidding. 
Um, no, we give them a hard time. Every time we're together, we make a big deal about the differences in the way their parents respond to us and treat us. And you know how that exists in every family. The oldest got to spend more time with mom and dad alone than anybody else. And they, they develop this kind of superior, like they have a hard time telling that they're not a parent, even though they've been given more responsibility. The middle child standing in between, trying to establish themselves and distinguish themselves from the others. The, the youngest, the baby, gets much more care and coddling. Sometimes it's seen as the favorite. Every family deals with their kids in different ways. And sometimes, inadvertently, parents, we can create a situation where our kids get jealous and they end up in this huge conflict, argument, fight, because of the tension that we have created among them. We need to be careful about making sure that we affirm our kids, that we, we value them for who they are and what they do equally and evenly so that they all understand that they are loved that their lives are meaningful and significant, that we answer that basic need in their lives. Because each of us needs that kind of affirmation to know that we are enough as we are, that we're loved. And as parents, we have a great responsibility in the lives of our kids to give them that foundation, to help them overcome those feelings, to recognize how to build healthy relationships and how to maintain those healthy relationships instead of living in conflict. Think about the way Adam and Eve would have raised Cain and Abel. Think about the stories they would have told to their kids. They're sitting around at night getting ready for bed, and, and Adam and Eve would talk about life in the Garden of Eden with God, the peace that they experienced, the joy of having everything that they needed at their disposal. No worries, no fears, no wonders. And then that one day when the serpent came, and presented temptation, the temptation of jealousy. And he painted this picture saying, now here's one thing God said you can't do. You can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? It's because God made you to look like him, but he left out this one thing, this knowledge. And if, all, if, if you could just take hold of this fruit and eat, you would know everything that God knows. You would, you would, you would rise up to the same level as, as God. Think about what that would look like for your lives. And he presented this temptation of jealousy in the lives of Adam and Eve. And presented with that thought, they took and ate. And because of their sin, they were separated from God. They learned that hard, painful lesson, the damage in their relationship with God. And they would Think about how they would have talked to their kids about, about those moments in their life, those learning experiences, hopefully teaching their kids to recognize that when it came, that temptation, recognize those emotions so that they could master them, so they could overcome them. And yet what we see is that Cain succumbed to the, the power of those emotions, destroyed his brother, and was punished because of it. He moved away from his family. Those relationships were severed. He established a life on his own, and he experienced the consequences of his actions. He destroyed the trust and peace that existed within his family. Notice in chapter 5 where we read about the, the legacy, the family line of Adam. The God made Adam and Eve in his image, called them mankind. And Adam and Eve had a son named Seth, and Seth was in Adam's image. Notice that, that Cain and Abel's names aren't listed in that, 
historical record. It's set. It's listed there. Now, I want to be careful not to draw any false conclusions. The moral of the story is not, don't worry if you fail with your, your first set of kids, just have more later. That's not, what, that's not what we need to read from this. Now, that works for some people, but, but what we need to read out of the story, the true moral is this. We have to actively stand for what's right so that we don't passively be destroyed by what's wrong. Now, that's a careful decision that we each have to make each and every day to very specifically choose what is right, to devote ourselves to doing what is right. Because if we don't, if we let things happen, if we don't take an active decision in that process, we'll be swept by what's wrong. We'll find ourselves in difficult places, with broken relationships, experiencing consequences because of what we have done, unless we choose to dedicate ourselves to what's right. Now, the consequences of allowing conflict to reign in our families are very similar to what Cain experienced. If we don't address conflict and correct it, we'll experience separation and isolation that comes as those relationships break down. But if we choose to do what's right, if we choose to care for people that we're related to more than the difficulties that separate us, we'll find that harmony, that peace, that trust. Choosing to do what's right isn't easy. In fact, what's easy and what's right are rarely the same. Choosing to do what's right is difficult. It requires time, effort, energy, humility. It requires sacrifice from us. And while it requires more from us, it also produces more for us. When we choose to do what's right, we find the blessing of, of health in our relationships, of, of growth that comes as we draw closer together and closer to the Lord. Choosing to overcome jealousy and selfishness requires us to sacrifice for the sake of the people that we care about the most. Sometimes we have to be the bigger person and step into the gap that was caused by our conflict and be willing to apologize. Even when we know there's no apology coming back in return, we have to do it anyway because it's right. Even though it's difficult, it's the right thing to do. And it's critical that we each take responsibility for the wrongs that we've done. We also have to come to terms with the idea that trust that exists in relationships takes a long time to earn. It takes just a moment to destroy. And while we know that once trust is broken, it's gonna take a long time to build back up, it's worth the effort. This is the same with peace in our families. That peace takes a long time to establish and it's destroyed just as quickly as trust. But as we focus on people, as we care about those relationships, as we build those bonds together, we'll be building trust and peace back into our relationships and back into our families. And we need to remember that it's gonna take time. That just because we apologize doesn't mean that everything's gonna go right back to the way it was. No, it's a slow building again, but it's worth the time and energy and effort. It's worth the sacrifice for the sake of the people that you care most about. We need to be willing to do what's right, even if it means sacrifice. And that's the example that we have in Jesus of loving us so much that he was willing to sacrifice everything, laying down his life to provide the opportunity for us to, to grow in relationship with him. And in that relationship, we find strength. In that relationship, we find peace. 
We find everything that we need to do what's right, to continue doing what's right, to care for people, and to live in the same forgiveness and grace that he gave to us, to extend it into our families, to extend it outward into the world around us. This morning, as we conclude our sermon, I want to challenge you to be praying for your family. Now, as you're praying, to be asking God about those points of conflict that have emerged, to help bring those to your attention. And ask God for the strength to step into those gaps. And ask Him for the strength to do what's right in those moments, to reconnect, rebuild those relationships. I want to take just a minute to pray for you. And after that prayer, we'll have a time of invitation. There's a song that's being played. If there's anything in your life you want prayer for, if there's a decision that you want to make about your relationship with Jesus, I want to encourage you to come forward after we pray. God, thank you for the families that you provide. Thank you for the relationships that you build in our lives. Thank you for the friends and, and for the church family that you bring around us to support us when when our family isn't there. God, we, we're grateful for those relationships. And God, I pray right now that you would help us to, to recognize those, those conflicts that have come, that you would help us to step into the gap, you would help us to care for the people on the other side, that you would give us the strength to, to be an example of your love and grace, that you would give us the peace to overcome our pride, to overcome the difficulties that have emerged in life, that we would love people as you love us. God, we are so grateful for you, for your grace and for your love. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand?